You're listening to another episode of Diferente. I'm your host, Maribel Quesada-Smith, and this is the fourth episode in our conversations on entrepreneurship. If you ever thought about being an entrepreneur or have been thinking about it for a long time, you might want to consider actually listening to your intuition. I believe sometimes life puts us in positions where we have opportunity to change our lives and make things happen. And if we don't take that opportunity and run with it, sometimes it passes. My guest in this episode will tell you how she spent a year of her life fighting her intuition and fighting that opportunity that was presented. It wasn't until she recognized that she had everything she needed to be an entrepreneur that she actually started to focus on her business. Her name is Sydney Mack, and she's an Atlanta-based business attorney who's also an author and law professor. She's quite accomplished, especially since she's under 30. But to me, what was even more surprising about Sydney's story is the growth that she succeeded experience through a very difficult life hurdle that she's had to overcome. Bienvenidos. Welcome to Diferente. My name is Maribel Quesada-Smith. I'm an expert at questioning everything who wants to bring more color into your life. I'll be coming at you every week with a little humor and a mountain of passion to share with you stories and ideas related to life, culture, creativity, and business that will inspire all of us to explore different perspectives. Don't be surprised if you find yourself motivated to shake things up. That's known to be a side effect of the Diferente life, and it's contagious. Now let's get to it. Thank you so much for joining me, Sydney, on Diferente. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. So I know you have a very interesting story, and I really want our listeners to hear all about it in your entrepreneurial journey. But let's start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? I'm originally from Vegas. So now that you guys are on the West Coast, you know, it's the best coast. <laughs> I guess you can be a little biased. Did you go to college on the West Coast? I went to Hampton. I went to school at um, Hampton in Virginia. And um, that was a culture shock coming from Vegas and growing up in a very secular community environment, very liberal. And then moving to Virginia was definitely a culture shock. How so? Like, what was the, the most shocking part well, of it? Well, Virginia is very conservative still. The values, like, it's definitely a Southern state in the terms of the values and the history of the state. It's very Southern, very conservative. We wear stockings, you know, with our dresses and we go to church on Sunday. And that's just not how I grew up. That's not who I am. <laughs> you know, okay. um, we grew up very like free, very, you know, wear whatever, do whatever. I mean, I remember when I was 16 years old, me and my mom went together to get a belly button piercing. My cousin had got hers and my mom was like, okay, I want one too. So we went and got one. <laughs> I don't think you finished telling me why you were so shocked when you went to Virginia, other than the fact that obviously, you know, they just did things differently. But is there a story that you can think of that was particularly shocking to you? So when I was in college, that's actually when I started getting alopecia. And what I'm sorry, for those who don't know, can you tell us what it is? For those who don't know, alopecia is an autoimmune disease. Um, there, Okay, so there are varying stages 
of alopecia and there are different kinds. Some people get it like they call it traction alopecia from a lot of stress or tension um, on the hair follicles. And then the kind that I have is an autoimmune disease where my body thinks that my hair is a disease. So it fights it off. So I don't have any hair on my body anymore. Like anywhere? Nowhere. Oh, and so wow. I, mm-hmm. so I actually had signs of this when I was very, very young. I would get like little bald spots in my hair, but they would always grow back. And so from the mm. time that I was maybe like eight or nine to the time that I went to college, I was completely fine. Never saw any bald spots or anything. And then when I was about 20, it just all went. Wow. Yeah. So when I was in school and I was going through this, it didn't fall out all at once. It probably fell out over the course of about six months. And during that time, I also went to, you know, the dermatologist and stuff like that and went through minor treatment. I didn't go through the full treatment because there really is no cure. Um, And so it was starting to come back. But school was very stressful for me. Like I didn't really enjoy the social aspect of it. So when I would go home and they say some stress can be a trigger. So when I was still going through the treatment, I would go home for breaks and my hair would start to grow back. And then I'd go back to school and be bald. Oh, Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I'd go home and be like, And for a teenager, that must have been super. Yeah. Just, I don't even know, like stressful on top of the stress. And going to an HBCU, right? So in the Black community, we as Black women can be very hard on each other. Not as kind as we can be, especially at that age where it's not cool to be different, right? And especially not 10 years ago when it wasn't cool to be bald. I mean, I remember growing up and we had like little little rhymes, you know, as kids, like, you know, it wasn't cool to be bald. It would be like, oh, so-and-so is a bald scatter rat. She ain't got no hair in the back. You know what I mean? They have those little rhymes. Oh, wow. Oh, you never heard of that? <laughs> well, it's rough. Maybe it's no. a black community thing. Like, yeah, like if somebody had short hair, that that would, the kids would sing and they would say, like, it was not a cool thing to be a bald black woman. It wasn't cool to have short hair. It wasn't, you know, unless you intentionally cut it, right? So going through that experience at a black school, I mean, if you know anything about black culture as black women, you know, if your edges are thinning, it's like, oh, oh no, she ain't got no edges. My edge is snatched, whatever. You know what I mean? <sighs> just just the edge, right? Not even all the hair. So if you're just missing <laughs> a little piece or it's thin or something, it's, it's just not cool. So going to wow. a black school and going through the trauma of losing your hair like was very, very, very difficult. Yeah. And that was definitely one, one of the things that negatively impacted my social experience during college going through wearing wigs and I was in rural Virginia. So, you know, my family wasn't there. I was in college. I didn't have a ton of money and I'm trying to find these cheap wigs and these little cheap beauty supplies in the middle of rural Virginia, you know, and it's me and somebody's grandma 
sifting through the little synthetic <laughs> hair wigs they had. And you know what I mean? Like it was bad. And so back to the story about it being a shock. This is just an example. By my senior year, I had found lace fronts. So one day I was sitting in class and I just burst out into tears because sometimes that would just happen. Like the weight of everything that was going on in my life. I also had a negative experience with abuse in college. And so it was, you know, I sometimes oh. like I just would just burst out into tears spontaneously. And I did this one time in class. And one of my professors was like, what's wrong? Because I was a straight A student. I graduated magna cum laude, um, never had any issues academically. And he was like, what's wrong? And I was like, uh, I just broke down and told him everything, everything that was going on. And so I told him and he actually connected me with another professor who had it, who I didn't know and who had, I didn't know had it. And he was like, I sat down, I talked to her and we were having a conversation and she took off her wig in the middle of our conversation. And I was like, oh snap. And she was like, you would have never known. I I didn't know. And she was older. She was maybe like in her seventies or eighties. So I knew she had a wig, but I didn't think she would ever snatch it off in the middle conversation so <laughs> anyway you know like she wasn't young but you know for her to her to yeah. have that that moment of transparency with me was very special and so she recommended this hair shop to me that was based in las vegas and i didn't even know she's like i've been ordering my hair from this place forever it's a it was a medical hair restoration center and so that's when I got my first lace front wig. So I went back to school my senior year, fly, honey. And the lace fronts back then weren't <laughs> even as fly as they are now. You know what I mean? Like they look good, but uh-huh. not like they do now. But I still was the best wig we had ever seen, right? At that time. So I'm like, yes, I'm fly. <laughs> I'm going in my senior year. Like I don't have to wear these bad wigs anymore. I'm not like half bald or whatever. So I was still going through the process though. And so my mom came up to the school because I was supposed to have a single room and I didn't have one. And I was like, mom, I can't be in a room with these girls and them see my hair and know that I wear a wig. Like I'll never be able to live that. Oh, down. People didn't know. Um, not really. I mean, it wasn't something that I like openly shared. And, and even with people that I did share with, it's one thing to, to tell someone that you have alopecia when you have a full head of fake hair on. It's another for them to see it with you actually bald, to see you with no makeup on when you don't have any eyebrows on, you don't have any eyelashes, when you have no hair on your head. And at that, you know what I mean? It's different. So when did you decide to embrace the baldness? When did you leave the wigs behind? Um... Well, so I also, when I was 21, I got my eyebrows tattooed on. So I went like full tilt cover up, right? So um, when I was 25 and in law school, I had been wearing the wigs now for like five years every day. Like couldn't catch me out in these streets without my wig on. And um, it took a toll on my scalp. Because I don't know if you're familiar with how the process for putting the wig on is, but you can either bond it to your scalp using tape, a very, very, very strong adhesive tape, double-sided, or glue. Like, those are the only ways. It's not a traditional wig that you can just 
throw on and throw off. And so after years and years of doing that every day, it um, started to deteriorate the skin on my scalp and it was very sensitive. It was very inflamed. I mean, it's it, it got like so uncomfortable that I just, I couldn't put the wig on anymore because it was so irritating to my scalp. And so I was like, what am I going to do? And my doctor was like, well, you may have to take a break from the wigs. And I was like, what? Take a break? Like, can't take a break? <laughs> this, me and this wig is for life. Like, there is no break. And he was like, well, if you don't take a break from the wigs, then you could risk permanent damage to your scalp. And so I was like, well, I guess I have a choice to make. And I decided to try taking a break from the wigs. But for me, it was always meant to be temporary, like just a couple days taking a little breather. Um, and then I'm going right back to the wigs. But I knew that, you know, I was in law school at the time. I was still uh, litigating. I was in a very, very conservative profession. I'm in a very conservative area of the country. I went to a very conservative law school. And so I was like, if I have to leave my house without my wig on, I need to try to minimize the damage as much as possible. So before I, before I came to law school, I was in PR. And, you know, I still do some PR and I was like, I need to figure out how I can get out ahead of this issue. So I decided to do put a post on Facebook talking about my journey. And I put a picture there, not for attention, not for any other reason that if somebody I knew saw me on the street, I didn't want them to ask me any questions. That was the main motivation for doing that. And I was like, if I put it here and people know, then I won't have to answer the same questions 10 million times every single day that I walk out on the street, at least not with people I know. So I was like, let me do that. So I put it up there and I let people know like, hey, like, I don't know if I'm going to be not wearing my wigs forever, but this is my story. This is what it is. But that was my main motivation for doing it. And then ever since then, I just actually never went back to the wigs. But it was never like a, oh, I have all this strength and courage. Like, no, that the first day I had to go out. And the crazy thing is I would wear not wear my wig all the time back home in Vegas because it's just that kind of town. Like, it wasn't a big deal. But being here, I, like, would never, never. And I remember having to go to class, like, that first day. And I sat in my bathroom at home crying for, like, hours I missed half my classes that day because I just could not pull myself to get up and go. I was like, I can't, I can't do it. And um, finally, I was like, there was one class that I couldn't miss, like I had to go to. So I put a hoodie on, put my hood on, put all this makeup on, <laughs> hoping nobody would really notice <laughs> and went to class the whole day with the hood up. Man, this was quite a journey for you. And first of all, I didn't know about it. But thank you for sharing that because it's so interesting. And it really shaped you as a person. I'm guessing I'm guessing it really had a long time effect on yeah. you. How do you embrace it now? Um, it's still a it's still a challenge. You know, I think as women, we all struggle with our beauty. But I would say that it's it's still definitely like an insecurity. Like I, I think that I'm beautiful, but you know, it's it's tough. It's tough 
dating, like you want to feel desirable, like, you know, you want somebody to to think that you're beautiful and whether you have makeup on, whether you look great or not, whether you have the fake eyelashes on, whatever, like you want to feel beautiful. And, and I go without makeup all the time, contrary to what y'all see on the gram. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I go without makeup all the time, like, cause I just don't care at this point. Like, it's just not, I have other things to do than to be worried about it. But at the same time, even when online dating, like it's really difficult, but I don't think that many men grow up with this idea of what their perfect wife or ideal woman looks like. And she is bald. I don't think so. I just don't think so. You know what I mean? Like, and so no, I, I would agree. I would and agree so with you. it's not yeah. like a conscious thing. Sometimes it's a very subconscious thing, yeah. especially when you talk about online dating. And I feel like a lot of women, you know, a lot of people online date now. And especially when you don't have an opportunity to meet the person and get a feel for their personality too much outside of their looks it's really easy to let a lot of those subconscious biases come into play. It's really easy when you're making a split second decision on a picture. You know, I've had people ask me like, well, is it hereditary? Like if we have kids, will our kids have it? I'm like, I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I can't, I don't know. Like, I don't, like that's tough. Or going to the grocery store and having kids be like, mommy, why is she bald? Or people coming up to you be like, oh, my sister has cancer. Boo, I don't have cancer. Like, you know what I mean? Or, you oh, know, like, yeah. They make that yeah. assumption. Or you're yeah. so pretty. Why would you cut off all your hair? Up? I ain't doing that with you today. <sighs> you know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff gets draining yeah. and tiring. And even though we have ever expanding views about what is beautiful, it's still not widely accepted to be a bald woman. And, and I'm not even talking about having short hair, right? Because women who have short hair will come up to me like, oh, girl, we got the same hair. And I'm like, there's a difference because you still have hair, <laughs> number one, and you have a choice yeah. as to what your hair looks like. If you decided tomorrow that you wanted your hair to be a little bit longer, you could stop cutting it. You know what I mean? Like there, there is a difference um, even in having some hair and being completely bald. And so, you know, it's, it's a challenge. Hey, you. Yeah, I'm talking to you. What are you doing with this podcast? Are you sharing it with your friends? Because one of the best ways to let somebody know that you care about them is by sharing thought-inspiring content with them. Like this podcast, where we share stories and experiences that expose us to different perspectives. Here are three easy ways to share the show. You can take a screenshot of this episode and post it on social media, text it directly to anyone in your contact list, or you can also send them the link to our website, diferentepodcast.com. Voila! Super simple. If you like Diferente, the best way to support us is by sharing it, sharing it, and sharing it some more. Now let's get on with the show. There's definitely a significant amount of our identity that's caught up with our hair as women in general. I... I don't know how we can detach ourselves from that, but you're right. I mean, I can't imagine not having hair and you're right. Like, I don't know why we're so attached to it, but we just are. It's almost like it's a part of our your identity, sexuality. I, mean, it's a, I think it's a part of your identity. Yeah, it's part of your identity, but it also kind of plays up in sexuality. Like there's a mm -hmm. lot of that tied into it. Oh my it. God. And so 
it shapes the way you see the world too, I think. When you step outside, do you automatically default to that that thinking of like, who's judging me? Who's looking at me? Are they looking at me for the right reasons? Um, Or are they looking at me to judge me? I don't necessarily see it as people judging me. Um, I see it more as people being curious. And, and I don't question why people are looking at me anymore. I know why they're looking at me. <laughs> like, I know why. Over the years, it's become less. Now that short hair and like, you know, Black Panther has come out. But especially four and five years ago, I could not leave my house without that being the case. I don't question that people are why they're, I know why they're looking at me. I just, I can't be bothered. Just don't say nothing to me. If you want to look, you can look, just don't say nothing to me. Let me, <laughs> let me just <laughs> go on about my business. Oh my gosh. The, like I said, we could talk about this for hours, <laughs> but I really want to get to yeah. the other part of the episode, <laughs> which is about entrepreneurship and law and the stuff that keeps us up at night. So to transition real quick, what made you decide to pursue a career in law? So I kind of got into being a lawyer because I was like, oh, I can be a sports lawyer. And I've always been interested in negotiating, negotiating deals. And so I was like, OK, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be an agent. And then I found out that a lot of sports agents are lawyers. So I said, OK, I'll go ahead and go to law school, too. So what then made you shift a little bit? I wouldn't say necessarily completely turn the corner, but now you you establish your law firm. You are now helping not just uh, athletes, but you also work with small businesses. Mm -hmm. So what made you decide to be an entrepreneur? I couldn't find a job. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love, I love how real you are. <laughs> I mean, that's the honest truth. Like I was, I started my career here, um, at the DA's office and, uh, was just doing a fellowship there. So it wasn't supposed to be long-term. And then I ended up getting a full-time position in the same county as a staff attorney. And so I did that and I hated it. And I guess they hated me too, because I got fired. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it just wasn't a good fit. It mutually. wasn't a good fit. It wasn't at all. Like, um, I still believe that I did my best work, but I think that a lot of people don't realize that when you hate your job, even if you're good at what you do, it it shows, you know, the way that that you show up and you're present every day is not the same as when you are enjoying yourself and you enjoy what you're doing. And so I don't really think that people realize how obvious it is you know on the inside you're working super hard to fake it every day but some things you just can't fake right so if you don't like your job there's probably a high likelihood that they don't like you either because of the way that you're showing up every day because you're not showing up your best self and I tried really really hard to to show up the best that I could every day but the best that I could wasn't the best that I have to give and I think they recognized that. And, you know, it was cool. Like, of course, at the time, I felt really hurt and betrayed because I knew that the work that I was still producing was still quality work. And, you know, I hadn't had another job lined up. So at the time, it was really scary. I, you know, felt really hurt. The way that it happened was just very sudden. I wasn't expecting it. And I was just kind of out there. 
So I was trying to find a job within the sports industry, which is what I went to school for, doing what I liked or something close, something that would at least put me on the path to getting there, even if it wasn't that next job wasn't exactly that job. And I couldn't find that job. And so one of my girlfriends who also has her own firm was like, girl, why don't you just start a law firm? Start your own firm. And I was like, nah, like I really didn't want to. I really didn't want to. Like I never had any dreams, hopes, aspirations to be an entrepreneur. It wasn't really what I wanted to do. But I went ahead and started the firm anyway so that I could at least not have a gap in my employment history, honestly, truly. And to buy myself some time so people wouldn't just think that I was doing nothing. And during that time, I wasn't doing nothing. Like I did contract work for other firms and, you know, I was still bringing in money, but my focus was not my firm. What's the biggest fear you had to face before you actually got down to business and really started to grow your your firm? Failure and Failure meaning like I would not be able to support myself. Um, life is expensive. And as an entrepreneur, you have to be comfortable with the unknown and the unexpected. And one of those unexpected things is coins. You don't know how much money you're going to be making. One, one week you can make $10,000 and the next week you can make nothing. And the next week you can make nothing. And the next, next week you can make, I mean, it's just, there is no guarantee. And while there is no guarantee in how much I will be making, I was very much guaranteed to be receiving a bill for my life every month. That was a guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah. that's very scary. That's a very scary position to be in. Before I left my previous job, I had just purchased my first house. I had a dog. So I had already had some lifestyle responsibilities that I was like, whoa, like now I'm just kind of out here on my own and I have to figure this thing out. So that's kind of why I started doing the contract work, because it was a way for me to have at least some money coming in while I figured things out. And then to the rest of the world, I was, you know, this fabulous entrepreneur. But, you know, like I said in the beginning, it wasn't that. Well, and it's never that glamorous, right? People always think from the outside, it looks amazing to be an entrepreneur, your own boss, but the reality is completely different. I mean, yes, it can be amazing, mm -hmm. but it's not always shiny and glamorous. No, it's not. But what ended up happening is even without doing anything, no promotion, no nothing, I started getting clients just because I would be out. I would meet people, whatever. And I was like, in one month, I made like a good amount of money. And I was like, wait, this is lit. Like this could be a thing thing. <laughs> so I was like, what would happen if I actually put some effort into this? Right. So I kept doing the contract work, but I really started to, to do what I needed to do to make this business work. Like I started taking classes. I started like, even though I have a background in PR, I didn't know anything about sales and marketing from, you know, a business perspective. So I started taking classes about business management, business operations, sales, marketing, started taking, you know, legal classes of trying to expand my knowledge of areas because your law degree is very much a exercise in theory. It is not at all about the practical elements of being a lawyer. 
And so since I had only had about a year and a half of experience as an associate before I had to come be a full-time entrepreneur by myself, there were still some practical things that I needed training on. So I took additional, you know, legal, practical legal classes to help me with those skills. I sought out mentors, um, past professors who helped. I had a mentor of mine who reviewed every contract I sent out the first three months. But I started doing those things, seeking out those mentors. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get serious. So even though I would say, you know, the tail end of that first year, I still wasn't doing anything in terms of promoting my business. I was preparing myself to run the business when I knew I was going to start getting ready. That's super smart. Mm -hmm. I think that is something that a lot of people miss too. That's a step that, that misses. It's like, you don't start promoting your business until you know what the heck you're doing, mm -hmm. <laughs> first of all, and you feel like you have a grasp on your idea, your messaging, contracts, all of these little things that could creep up on you and really mess you up if you don't have, if you're not ready once you launch. So, yeah. I mean, there's, no, I like, I like the, the, the idea of almost like a soft launch when you go into it, you know, mm -hmm. starting with just the small steps of doing some work while you're still training, while you're still learning, while you're still making sure that you have all of your um, business handled, for lack of a better term, before you really start to invest in your marketing and PR and what, whatever. I think you did a great job there. As a young entrepreneur, do you feel like sometimes, though, you have to go the extra mile to prove that you're good at what you do? As a young entrepreneur, no. As a young black female entrepreneur that's bald with a nose ring, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> like to be taken seriously, do you feel like you have to fight a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even as a professor, so I'm a professor now and half the people at the school don't haven't realized that I'm not a student. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, well, that can be good and bad. <laughs> it's like, oh, I still look like I'm 20. <laughs> well, I'm only 29. So I don't just look like I'm 20. And I started when I was 28. So I don't, and I actually started interviewing for the position when I was 27. So I don't just look young. I am young. And there's probably a large number of my students who are older than me. And most of them know that, you know, this year I was nominated as a Forbes under 30 fellow. So when that came out, you know, my students were like, what? You're under 30? <laughs> you know, I mean, I look young, but I never really told them how old I was. So I don't think they really knew just how young I was. So like I said, when that came out, it was like, okay, she's really young, but I'm really good at what I do. Like my mm -hmm. students know that I'm very engaging. Like it's very important for me to to connect with my students is very important and with my clients too. Like it's very important for me to be relatable. It's very important to not be intimidating. I want, I want you to understand me, you know? And I think that sometimes a lot of lawyers can get so caught up in, Oh, I'm a lawyer. Let me be all, you know, high brow and, and use all this legal yeah. But I feel like, <laughs> If you cannot explain a concept in plain English, you probably don't know it that well. And if you think that being a lawyer is anything but a business of connecting with people, then you've missed the mark. You can't connect with people as a lawyer because they're not lawyers. They don't know what that is. 
They can't connect with you on that level. You can't talk to them like that. I'll even say like my mom is my assistant. And so she was like really wanting that job. So I was like, I was looking and she was like, no, I really want the job. So I was like, okay, mom, you can be my assistant. And so even when I send, you know, I work from two different generations. So when I send emails and stuff like that, even to clients, I'll be like, hey, so-and-so. She was like, hey, why are you saying, hey, you need to be more professional. I'm like, no, mom, (laughs) this is about relationship building. I'm very intentional. I've written a book, okay? Like I know how to write. I've taught business communication classes. I know how to write. I know what a professional email looks like. I'm very intentional about the words that I use. I say it on purpose. When I communicate on Instagram, I start every post with, listen, y'all, if you watch my, like, it's about connecting with people. It's about relating to people. And if you don't understand that, you're not going to be successful in any business, especially as an entrepreneur. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with Sydney so far. And I have to say that I'm very thankful that she shared her own personal journey with us, especially the difficult journey that she's had to overcome as she's had to deal with losing her hair. I mean, honestly, as a woman who really values her hair, I could not imagine. There's just no way that in my 20s I would have been as brave as Sydney was to face the world in that situation. I don't know what I would have done. So thank you, Sydney, for not just leaving us with a great lesson on entrepreneurship, but also a lesson about being brave. Tune in next week to listen to part two of my conversation with Sydney Mack. And if you're listening in the future, hello, future people. How are those self-driving cars working out for you? Just look for episode 135, part two. And if you've enjoyed this episode, come and join me on Instagram. Just look for Diferente underscore podcast. Or you can also get me on my personal account at A Diferente Life. My name is Maribel Quesada-Smith. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Diferente. If you like this episode, let me know by leaving a five-star review and by sharing a screenshot of this podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Just don't forget to tag me at A Diferente Life so I can know you're listening. Hasta pronto.